For some, you're at a place there where you need to, but you haven't even considered it. There are times in our lives where we come to tasks or circumstances that are so incredibly overwhelming that we don't know exactly how to, how, how to, how to address the issues that are. We don't know exactly how to remedy the circumstances. What I want us to see this morning is as we move into the book of Nehemiah and as we start in chapter 1, I want us to see a man named Nehemiah who had faced such an incredible circumstance, such a, an amazingly large obstacle that for him, he faced a couple of, uh, c- couple of options as to how to remedy it. He, you know, he could jump in and roll his sleeves up and get to work, which he would. Or he could just give up, you know, or he could choose to do something different. And we're going to see what that something different was today. You know, when we go through difficult times in our lives, what we often do is we respond in a couple of different ways. You know, for some of us, you can kind of think of a circumstance that you've been through recently that has been overwhelming, that's been very difficult. For some of us, you know, we, we kind of have that, that, you know, let's get this done mentality, right? You know, you face a circumstance, whether it's in your marriage or in your, in your workplace or just something you've come up against that's difficult. And your mentality, your first thought is, you know what, I'm going to get this done. It's like the Home Depot, you know, uh, let's do this kind of a commercial where you're going to just roll the sleeves up. You're going to get in there. You're going to work through it. You're going to fix it. You're going to make it right. But then there are also others at the other end of the spectrum whose perspective, whenever they face obstacles, overwhelming obstacles, is to just sort of throw the hands up and give up and just sort of say, I'm done. I'm not going to do anything because I can't do anything. I'm just done here. I'm done emotionally. I'm done physically. I'm done financially. I'm done spiritually. And it doesn't matter what, what everybody else says I should do. I can't fight anymore for my marriage. I'm done. I can't fight anymore to come out of this hole that I'm in. I'm done. I can't fight anymore to try to fix this obstacle in my life. I am done. And for some of you, perhaps you're tempted even today as you face an insurmountable obstacle to just walk away, to throw in the towel, to throw your hands up and say, you know what? I'm finished here. I'm going to move on to the next relationship. I'm going to move on to the next job. I'm going to move on to another city. I'm going to just move on in my life because I do not know how to bridge the gap between my problem and a solution. And what we did last Sunday was we laid out the groundwork really kind of for what we're going to look at in this book of Nehemiah. And I'll I'll rehash a little bit of that in a moment. But what I want you to see today in Nehemiah's life is that this was an ordinary man who faced a huge obstacle in his life. And he's going to take action, but there's going to be something else that he's going to do first that made all the difference in the world. So here's what we covered last Sunday. We began to lay out the groundwork for the book of Nehemiah. For a lot of you, you know, you're familiar with it. You've read through that book. For others of you, you didn't know it was in the Bible even. That's okay. You're going to find out here these next few weeks that, it, that it's in there. It has a lot of good stuff to say. But for some of you, probably for most of us, if someone said, hey, real quick, off the top of your head, name the, the first five books of the Bible that come to mind, probably Nehemiah is not going to be in the list for any of us right? It's just sort of buried back there in the, new, in, the, uh, in the Old Testament about halfway through. On the timeline, it comes at the really, on a, time, on, a, on a time scale, it comes at the very end of the Old Testament, even though the book is in the middle of the Old Testament. But the key figure there is a man named Nehemiah, and he lived in a real interesting time period in Old Testament history. What had happened was his people, the people of Judah, you know, his own countrymen, had been taken off into captivity, The reason for that was because of their sin. They had blown it over and over and over. And what God did then, he still does today when we blow it. He sent people to warn them, you know. He would kind of fire shots across the bow. And they were called the prophets. He would send prophets, God did, to the people of Judah saying, you need to straighten up, you need to come back to me, you need to quit playing games, you need to quit all your chasing after false idols, and you need to worship me with all your heart. 
And the people of Judah wouldn't listen. And so as God promised them, because they didn't return, he would ultimately discipline them. Like any father does his children, he would discipline them. And it was called Babylonian captivity, right? And so the Babylonians, the world power would come in. You're looking at about 500 years or so, roughly, uh, close to 600 years before Christ would come. Uh, And uh, they would take the people of Judah off into captivity. Drag them out of their homeland, take them out of Jerusalem, mainly, to modern-day Iran, about a thousand miles away, and they would be taken away as slaves, as captives. Not all of them, the more poor of the society, would be left in Jerusalem, but the biggest, the brightest, the best, most everybody else would be taken off into captivity. And they'd be there for about 70 years. And as God would promise, he would discipline them for 70 years, and then he would return them back to their homeland. And really, for example, you can see that laid out in Scripture in the book of Jeremiah 29. You don't have to turn there, but just look at this. Verse 11, a lot of you are familiar with, but verse 10, look at what it says. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. In other words, God says, I'm going to send you off to captivity for 70 years. This is going to happen. And then I'm going to bring you back home again. Verse 11. A lot of you know this verse really well. You've memorized it. You've got it on crochet in your, you know, in your living room. You've got it on a magnet in your refrigerator. You've got it hanging from your, you know, from your rearview mirror. Verse 11, a lot of us know, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Well, the whole context of that great verse is in the context of what's going on with Nehemiah, right? God sent his people off to captivity for 70 years. He promised them, I'll bring you back, and he did exactly that. A man named Cyrus of Persia would come to to power. He would overtake the Babylonians, kick them to the curb, right? He's now the world leader, and as was his custom, he would tell the people of Judah that had been captives, hey, you can go home. You know, I'm the new king on the block now, and my custom is to let all the older, you know, all the other former powers who got all these people as slaves, I'm just going to let them go home. So uh, people of Judah, head on home. thousand miles this way. Enjoy your trip. And Cyrus let them go home. And when they got back, how long do you think it had been from the time they had been taken off into captivity? 70 years. History bears it out. They built a temple. It took them 20 years to do that. That's a whole other story. But they would build a temple but their city largely would still be in ruins. And for the people of Judah, by the time Nehemiah would come along, it would be 445 B.C. roughly, about 450 years before Christ. There would be people now living in Jerusalem. 50,000 of them would come back home again. And they would find a temple. Ultimately, they would rebuild the temple, but the wall around the city would be in shambles. It would be broken down and non-existent in some places, but broken down in others. And God would raise up Nehemiah ultimately to face this overwhelming task of rebuilding the wall and restoring the people ultimately. And in the face of such an overwhelming task, Nehemiah could have thrown up his hands and said, you know what, I can't do this, I quit, I'm out of here. Or he could have said, you know what, I've got what it takes to fix this problem, just follow my lead boys and we're going to go in and get it all done. Or he could have done something else first. And what he did first, I'm just saying, has huge implications for those, for those of us who may be here today. And you're facing that overwhelming obstacle. You're facing the family that's fallen apart. You're facing the career change, and you don't know whether you should take advantage of this opportunity that's in front of you. You're facing a child that's breaking your heart. You're facing the financial hole that you're in, regardless of whether it was by your work or someone else's. And in the face of this mountain of overwhelming obstacle, what Nehemiah did, it's going to be what you and I have to do to come through the other side in victory as well.
So let's go ahead and jump in. Nehemiah chapter 1. You know, I do things backwardly at times, and so we're not going to start with verse 1, actually. Let's start with the last verse in chapter 1, verse 11. That's only fitting, I guess, for my nature. We'll just do things backwards. So Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11. This is the very last phrase of verse 11, the very last verse in that first chapter. So let me start here, and uh, and, and then I'll kind of share with you the reason. Verse 11 says, Nehemiah is writing this like a, like a journal account, and he says, now I was cupbearer to the king. So let's just start there for a moment. Who was Nehemiah? Nehemiah was a government official. He worked for the government, okay? He worked for the king here. I'll share in just a second who this was. But his job was not that of prophet. He was not a priest. He was not a king. Nehemiah was a government worker. He worked for the king. He was his cupbearer, which basically, in layman's terms, meant he was the taste tester. So that whenever uh, wine was put in front of the king, Nehemiah's job was to take the first sip of that wine, which was somewhat risky because, as you can imagine in those days, kings of kingdoms did not always make everybody happy. There was always somebody wanting to knock you off from the inside to take your power, to take your position. There were those as well who would try to work their way in from the outside to try to ultimately overthrow you and to dethrone you or to just take you out completely. And so kings normally would have a cupbearer who would be kind of the taste tester, the first to taste the the wine that was put in front of them, lest anyone would try to poison the king, you'd be the one that would die. Now here's the thing, for Nehemiah, I bet you he was the king's best cheerleader. Because everywhere he went, he's probably talking up, thinking, man, the king's a great guy, isn't he? Boy, he loves us. He does such good stuff for us. You don't hate him, do you? You know, Because he knew if anybody hated him, he's going to be the one that's going to find out first, and his life would be done as a result of it. So Nehemiah was the cupbearer, which tells us something. He was probably in closer proximity to the king than anybody else. I mean, every time this man sat down to eat or drink, Nehemiah would be pressed into action. And it would not have been unlikely for the king to ultimately lean on Nehemiah somewhat as an advisor. Why? Because he knew he could trust him. It would not have been unlikely for the king to, from time to time, say, Nehemiah, what do you think about this decision? Nehemiah, what do you think we ought to do about this circumstance in our kingdom? And Nehemiah was in a position of real influence, history tells us, Scripture tells us, because of his position as cupbearer to the king. Here's the cool thing. I'm I'm not going to camp here for long. I just want to say this, that for those that face insurmountable obstacles, it is mind-boggling how much God does behind the scenes to position us to experience his his delivery in our life, right, for us to experience his remedy. It's amazing what God does behind the scenes that we never know about. And when we stand before our mountain of overwhelming obstacle and our hearts melt with fear and we lose all will to try to push through and and we want to just give up and throw in the towel and say, you know what, I can't do this anymore, we would be shocked and amazed at what God is already doing behind the scenes for our good, for our benefit. And whenever the people of Nehemiah, of uh, Judah would face this wall that was broken down, I'll share the significance of that in a second. When they would face the wall that was broken down, listen, God was already putting the right person to lead the project in the right place, in proximity to the king that would make the decisions. God does the same thing in our lives. Man, when we face hard times, all we see is the hard time. We don't see behind the hard times to see what God's doing on our benefit for those who love and those who trust him. And so Nehemiah says in verse 11, I'm the cupbearer to the king. Let's go now to the beginning. Knowing who Nehemiah is, let's move back to verse 1. So he says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it happened in the month Kislev. Kislev would be on the calendar, would be uh, November, December. All right, so you're looking winter time. 
He says in the month Kislev, in the 20th year, that 20th year refers to the, the, the spot on the timeline of King Artaxerxes I. All right? He served for 40 years as king. Uh, he, this would be the 20-year spot. This would be right halfway through his reign. So Nehemiah says, we're looking at November, December. Uh, I'm serving in the court of King Artaxerxes. It's halfway through his 40-year reign. While I was in Susa, the capital, Susa was the winter capital, actually, the winter residence of the kings of Persia. It's where they went. When you're king, you got money at your disposal, right? So you can have a summer residence and a winter residence. This was their winter residence, Susa. Ironically, if you've ever studied the book of Daniel, Daniel was transported in a vision to the city of Susa. If you've ever studied the book of Esther in the Old Testament, the book of Esther is set in the city of Susa. So there's some real Old Testament history in this particular city. What you find is is that Nehemiah is living there now, working as a government official for King Artaxerxes I, and it's November, December of the middle of this king's reign. He says in verse 2 that Hanani, one of my brothers, more than likely a literal physical brother of his, not just a kinsman, one of my brothers and some men from Judah came. This would have been a thousand miles away. They show up and he asks them. He says, I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity, and I asked them about Jerusalem. So here's Nehemiah. He's in the winter, cap- the winter residence of the king of Persia, Artaxerxes I. It's wintertime, November, December. And all of a sudden, the knock comes at Nehemiah's door, and it's his brother, Hanani, and some of his, you know, some of his friends from, from back in the hood, right, back uh, over in, uh, in the Jerusalem area. And it's been years probably since he's seen him. And his first thing is, hey, what's going on with the family? What's going on with the people? How are things back home in Jerusalem? Look at verse 3. And so they said to me, well, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity, in other words, the people who either were left behind there or the ones who had been released and returned. He said, those people there are in great distress and reproach. Things aren't good, Nehemiah. People are hurting. People are struggling. And then he says, in the wall of Jerusalem, by the way, it was broken down and its gates are burned with fire. That doesn't sound like a big deal to us. It's a big deal with the wall. Let's build the wall. This is not an ordinary wall. This is a wall around a certain portion of the city. You say, I still don't get it. I don't understand what's the deal with the wall. Do you have a fence around your yard? You got a gate on that fence? You got a lock on that gate? <laughs> you know, the wall was security. It was protection from those that would try to infiltrate the city and do harm. They had no protection from the outside. But that wall was also about Identity. You know, we won't get into the political discussion about borders. Just flip on the next presidential debate. You'll hear all you want about immigration and borders. But I think we understand borders exist for a reason. Borders identify nations. Borders identify people. And for the people of Jerusalem, when they had no wall, they had no security to their identity. It protected them physically it protected them as in regards to their identity as a people and nehemiah hears that we got no wall back home this is a big deal so big verse four helps us to understand so when i heard these words i sat down and i wept and i mourned he says for days 
and I was fasting and I was praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah's only response when he faces this great need amongst his people back home, his only response then was to be broken over the brokenness of his country and over the brokenness of his people. And he begins to pray. Let's move through his prayer and begin to see how he prays because this is, this is an interesting thing. That as Nehemiah begins to pray, actually, he, he teaches us a lesson. And, and let me just give you this principle first before we begin to read through the rest of this chapter. And the principle is this, that whenever we think about prayer, prayer always precedes action, but it never replaces action. You see, when we face an insurmountable obstacle, what often happens is, is that, that we decide either we're going to get in there and fix it, all right? And we forget to pray about it. And, you know, we think we've got what it takes to fix the issue. You know, I'm going to fix my family. I'm going to fix my job. I'm going to fix my finances. I'm going to fix all whatever's going on. I'm going to get in there and fix it. And that's a great quality, but we forget to pray about it. Right? We don't want prayer without action. You know, we, we don't want just to pray about stuff and then have no action. And we don't want all action with no prayer. What Nehemiah shows us here is that prayer precedes action. It is the first step to being able to see God bring deliverance in the issues of our lives. Prayer precedes action, but it does not replace action. It's not either or, it is both. And so let's look at what Nehemiah begins to pray. Look in verse 5 back in chapter 1. He says, O Lord, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and who keep his commandments. First thing Nehemiah prays is that he begins to pray about God's everlasting love and God's everlasting covenant. And he reminds, not God, he reminds himself that God is a God who keeps his covenants. He is, a, he, he is a God who remains true to his people. And Nehemiah says, God, I know who you are. You are a great God. You are an awesome God. You are a God who ultimately preserves your covenant. You are a God who keeps and preserves your loving kindness towards those who know you, towards those who love you. But then Nehemiah transitions in his prayer, and he begins to own the sin of his life and of his people's life that separate them from God. Look at what he says in verse 6 and verse 7. He prays, Lord, let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I'm praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned, Nehemiah prays. Verse 7, he says, we have acted very corruptly against you. We have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances, which you commanded your servant Moses. Why is it important for Nehemiah to pray this? Here's why I believe it's important. Because whenever we face insurmountable obstacles in our lives, regardless of what they may be, what we often do is we first conclude that God must not love me. God must be against me. God must not be a God who keeps his promises because I thought bad things were never going to happen to me if I trusted him and followed him. And so Nehemiah prays, God, you're a God who keeps your covenants. I'm not going to go down that track of thinking you don't love me. I know you love me. But then what often happens as well is that we then begin to get angry at God because we feel like we deserve a smooth life. We deserve an easy life. We don't deserve difficulties. We don't deserve insurmountable obstacles in our lives. And Nehemiah checks that, and he begins to pray, God, we know that our sin has separated us from you, and we don't deserve anything from you. Let's just establish that up front. Nehemiah begins to pray. We've sinned. I have sinned. Our forefathers have sinned. We as a nation have sinned against you. Look at what he goes on to pray in the next, next uh, verse, verses 8 through 10. So he prays, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people's. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, 
Though those of you who've been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and I will bring them to the places where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants, he prays, your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. What's Nehemiah saying? He is saying, God, your justice is pure. You have handled your people appropriately. We trust you. Then look what he says in verse 11. He begins to do something that would set the stage for the rest of the book. He cries out to God. Oh Lord, I beseech you. I beg you. May your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name. And knowing he was about to stand before this king that could take his head for what he would about just about be ready to ask. He says, God, would you make your servant successful today? And would you grant me compassion before this man? Now I was cupbearer to the king. You know, when everything began to come to a head, Nehemiah's heart would be broken over his people and over his city. But before he would lift a finger to do anything, before he would take action, he would begin to pray. Because prayer always precedes action, but it does not replace action. For the next 12 chapters, you're going to see a man take action. But before he does, in this first chapter, he does the best thing that he could do. And he begins to cry out to God. You know, as I studied and as I read in preparation for this today, I came across a chapter in the book of Psalms that in a strange way is very similar to this first chapter. Psalm chapter 107. If you have your Bibles, turn there. For the next five minutes, I want you just to follow me through a lengthy passage of Scripture in Psalm chapter 107. What you'll find here in Psalm 107, as the psalmist writes, you'll find a description of four different types of people at four different places in life. What you're going to find is a common theme that runs through each of their stories. They're going to face trouble. They're going to cry out to God. God is going to respond, and they're going to praise God for what he does. Look at what it says in Psalm 107, beginning in verse 1. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he's redeemed from the hand of the adversary, gathered from the lands, from the east, from the west, from the north, and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a desert region. He's describing this first type of person. They wandered in the wilderness in a, in a desert region. They did not find a way to an inhabited city. Hey, have you ever been in a place in your life where you have wandered, where you have been so lost and undone, you didn't even know which direction to go? He says there were a people who were just like this. They were hungry, they were thirsty, their soul fainted within them. And then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them out of all their distresses. He led them also by a straight way to go to an inhabited city. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness, for his wonders to the sons of men. For he has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. To wanderers, what we find is that God calls us to cry out to him. And when we cry out, he responds and he delivers. 
and he warrants praise from those that he has delivered. The next group of people the psalmist describes, he says there were those who dwelt in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in misery and in chains because they had rebelled against the words of God and they had spurned the counsel of the Most High. Hey, have you ever been in a dark place in your life? Have you been in a dark place because you're the one who turned the light off? Have you ever been in a dark place in your life because of circumstances pressing in and you didn't know how you were going to get out? Something that you may have lost, maybe a dream that faded or a decision that you made that you wish you could take back and it's just been dark ever since. Have you ever been there and we try to fix it and we try to climb out of the pit? Here's what the psalmist says. He says in verse 12, therefore he, God, humbled their heart with labor and they stumbled and there was none to help. But then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. And he brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death, and he broke their bands apart. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. For he has shattered gates of bronze, and he has cut bars of iron asunder. For those that are lost in darkness, God offers a remedy. And that remedy ultimately is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. But man, that relationship does not come automatically. We have to come to a place where we are broken. And we ultimately realize our need for a Savior. And we cry out to Him to have mercy on us. And when we do, He hears us. Verse 17. He describes a third type of person. He says, fools, because of their rebellious way and because of their iniquities were afflicted. Their soul abhorred all kinds of food. They drew near to the gates of death. This was a person who had wandered so far from God, had sinned so greatly, and they were now beginning to feel the weight of the consequences of their rebellion against God. They're, they're, they're feeling regret and they're feeling the consequences of their sin, verse 19, but then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them out of their distresses. He sent his word and he healed them and he delivered them from their destructions. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness, for his wonders to the sons of men. Let them also offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his works with joyful singing. To tell of where I once was until God heard my cry and he rescued me. The next verse in verse 23 he describes. He says, those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he spoke and he raised up a stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. Have you ever been in a place where life is so difficult, life is so confusing, circumstances are so swirling that you don't know which way is up, you don't know which direction to go? Verse 27, he says, they reeled and they staggered like a drunken man. They were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad because they were quiet, and so he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness, for his wonders to the sons of men. Let them extol him also in the congregation of the people and praise him at the seat of the elders. And all throughout this psalm, what you see is a pattern of people who face trouble. And in response to that trouble, long before they took action, they cried out to God in prayer. And as they cried out to God in prayer, God would hear their prayers and he would offer a solution. He would respond to them. And as a result of seeing God's hand at work in their distress, because they cried out to him, their only legitimate response was to praise him. And in their church and in their community and in their families and in their part of the world where they went, there was constantly being heard the sounds of praise from people who once faced brokenness because they had lost, they had left, they had, had experienced the worst of life, and yet they cried out to God and were delivered. And everyone around them could hear the praises to the only one 
in existence, the God of heaven and earth, who would treat broken people that way. So where are you today? In that little timeline behind me, where are you there? Are you in a place of trouble? Have you tried to fix it before crying out to God? Are you at a place in your life where times are so difficult that the only thing you can do is not pray a little superficial prayer like you're inviting God over to dinner, but to cry out through the depths of who you are, God, I need you. And if you've cried out to him, do you know that he's going to respond? And where he has, have you yet praised him? Not in the quietness of your own silent prayer, but before the multitudes to say the God that I trusted when I cried out to him from the depths of my pain is a God who delivered me. And if you don't know that kind of a God, hey, listen, there's only one that exists. And the only way you'll know him is when you turn from your sin, broken over your rebellion against him, and say, Lord Jesus, would you forgive even me? Because he came and he died and he rose to do just that. Let's pray. God, all over this room this morning, I think there are people perhaps who face circumstances in life that necessitate crying out to you. Crying out to you on behalf of their children, on behalf of their spouses, on behalf of their circumstances, on behalf of their country, on behalf of their community, on behalf of this church, on behalf of those around them. And Lord, perhaps the reason we don't cry out to you sooner on behalf of others around us is because we really just don't care. And so God, maybe the first prayer that we need to cry is that God, would you, would you cut through the clutter in our lives? And give us hearts that are surrendered to you. Lord, give us hearts that want you to reign first and most and highest and supreme in us. So that your glory is demonstrated through us consistently. And Lord, when we hunger and we thirst for that to happen, we're going to be broken over our sin. We're going to be broken when we wander and we search for things to make our lives more comfortable that are outside of your will. We're going to be broken when other people are making choices that break your heart. We're going to be broken over them. So God, as we experience brokenness in our own lives and as we live in a country that is broken, surrounded by broken people, Lord, long before we try to fix anything, Lord, help us to be people that first cry out to you from the depths of our hearts. And God, even now as I'm speaking and praying, as others that are seated are praying, crying out to you for certain things in their own lives, we thank you by faith that you hear. And God, that you respond. And that you show up. And though you might not fix everything the way we want you to, you do fix it. And sometimes it's a sense of calm and peace in us as the storm rages. A peace that says, you know what, everything's okay because I hold you in the palm of my hand. You are mine. So God, help us to cry out for you, not just after a sermon like this, but through our lives. That we might, as we take action, follow your lead and give you the glory for what you do. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.